0: All right, please come on in, everybody. We will get started. And those of you at the door, if you guys could chase the folks in from outer darkness, that would be great. All right, and as you came in, the guys had copies of the notes for today's session and probably for next week as well. So does anyone not have notes, didn't get them as you came in? So we have guys ready to hand them out, all right, very good, excellent job guys, thank you for doing that. Well, if you will turn to page one of those notes, which are related to, as you see on the screen and on the front cover of your notes, this is our worry-free decision-making that starts today, and I anticipate it'll go for eight weeks, at the end of which we will have our four-week newcomer's orientation, and we offer that three times a year. It is four Sundays this hour in another part of the building, and I go through a notebook of material uh, for those who would like to know more about our church. And it's informational. It doesn't obligate you to anything. It just helps you make a decision. So those of you who fit in that category, if you're relatively new and you would like to know more, that will be a good thing for you. That'll happen uh, toward the end of November, early early December, after we complete this, this series. Page one in your decision-making notes, worry-free decision-making. This is what we sent out on the mailer that if you live in Trenton, you would have received. This went to everyone in the city of Trenton. And we said, we all make dozens of decisions every day, some big, some small. While making choices is simply a fact of life, many people fret and worry over those decisions, often afraid to make a move for fear of doing the wrong thing. How can I know that my decisions are right? Is there a decision-making process that will afford peace of mind after the choice is made? In this course, we're going to survey the decision-making principles offered in God's guidebook for life, the Bible. We're going to see that the Bible provides us with both the purpose toward which our decisions should be directed, as well as the means to evaluate those decisions. Your most important decision is the one that you've made, and that is committing to, to being here. So we need to start with what our authority is. Where do I I find the authority to tell me? We've already tipped our hand here that God's guidebook for life is the Bible. But we say here, genuine believers desire to please God with their lives, and they acknowledge the central role of the Bible to guide us in all aspects of faith and practice. Yet, many use methods to determine God's will that unintentionally undercut the authority of Scripture. We're going to see in this series that contrary to popular opinion, feeling led or having peace, and you see that those are in quotes, those are the ways many people go about trying to find God's will or confirming that they have, feeling led, having peace about it. Those are not authoritative. So we're going to identify some erroneous approaches to determining the will of God and then seek to offer a biblical corrective. We're going to try to answer questions like, What is the role of the Bible in our decision-making? Does God have more than one will? What does it mean to, in fact, be led by the Spirit? It is a phrase used uh, once in the New Testament, so we want to define it. What process should I use to make decisions? Is there a single purpose around which all the decisions should be made? How do desires fit in? So those are the kinds of things we're going to cover. Glad that you are here, and I hope you'll be able to make it for the weeks to, to come. Now we have some resources in our resource center that I would encourage you to consider. And you see them listed there. And we have a, at least a copy of all of these. And we have multiple copies of most of them, especially the first three. Now those, those are in alphabetical order. So it happens that the three that I recommend the highest are also the three that come in alphabetical order. But the one that I recommend the highest is actually the second one, and that's Gary Friesen's Decision-Making in the Will of God. We have that in our resource center, and we ordered uh, more copies of it for this week <clears throat> This week, in anticipation of starting the series. But the other two are excellent as well, and they are smaller. Friesen's book is very, very large. It's very easy to read. It's not complicated, but it is, it is large. The others are smaller, so if you want to start with that, particularly John MacArthur's Found God's Will is a small and extremely helpful book. So I encourage you to consider those. We have them. Our Resource Center is open every Sunday before services and during our refreshment time that we just had and also after we are done here, you can go to the Resource Center. Page one then of your your notes. Each day, we face innumerable choices. Some of them are relatively small and insignificant. There's usually not much at stake when you choose between wearing a red or blue shirt or when you choose between McDonald's or Taco Bell, since both will equally kill you. So, it... But other decisions carry great significance. The choice of which person you should marry, what job you should take, what house you should buy, all of those contain the seeds of great changes for the future. So we've made a differentiation there between the big stuff and the small stuff because most people don't sweat the small stuff, especially if those small things are deemed to be really the same. You know, we say jokingly in the notes here that both will kill you. So if it's going to be Taco Bell or McDonald's, then those are equally bad choices for for all of us. And so if it's an equally bad choice, then it doesn't matter which one I make, or an equally good choice for that matter. But think about it this way. What if you believe that God guides you into the right choice for everything? And, and for every, at every instant, you need to be thinking about what it is that God wants you to choose in that moment. And what if you believed that you would know what that is if you were rightly related to God, if you were rightly attuned to God's Spirit? Then God would, in fact, lead you to the right one, even if it's small and even if it seems to us to be equal to another one. It's not equal to another one, this, this view would say. And you need to know which is the one in this instance including Taco Bell or Burger King or McDonald's. So this was very popular and still is, I, I guess. Now, we don't teach it here, as you will see, and so I haven't heard it as much, but I grew up hearing what I just said, taught regularly. And the idea was that you have to find God's will, and you have to find God's will for everything. And at certain times of life especially, it was very, very scary for people. I went to a Christian high school. And when you're in high school and you're trying to figure out life, this was a theme, a common theme that was taught in our Bible classes, that was taught in chapel services. Preachers would come in and they would talk about you young people need to be seeking God's will for your your life. That was the way it was stated. And there is a, a will for your life that you need to identify. And you need to identify the right, the right one. And if you are in right relationship with God, then you will make the right choice. And choices, plural. So it put a lot of pressure on those that cared about being attuned to God and doing God's will. And many of us, many of us did. Even the scoffers uh, still would have times where they would be concerned, worried about, am I in God's will? Am I gonna choose the right thing? And Then you come up to your senior year, your junior year, and you're now having to get things aligned for big choices in your life. Am I gonna go to college? And if so, what college am I gonna go to? Am I going to pursue a career? And if so, what kind of career am I going to pursue? Am I going to marry? And if so, who is it that I'm going to marry? And you got more of that, if you, especially if you went to a Christian college, you got what I was talking about in Christian high school, you got that on steroids. Because if nothing else, one of the things that you would hear at a Christian college was this, you need to be on God's will, and the one thing we all know for sure about God's will is that you're supposed to be here at this college. And if you leave this college, you're out of God's will. Now I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, actually. I went to a Christian college for two days. <laughs> I used to say two weeks, but it was, it's actually, the truth is, I was only there for two days. And I grew up Pentecostal. Some of you know what that is, but Pentecostalism is an approach toward your relationship with God in which God uh, speaks to your spirit directly. Sometimes bypassing the mind, but rather from God's spirit to your spirit. And you sense that God is leading you to do something. You sense that God wants you to do something. This was, it's not confined to Pentecostalism, but it's very big in Pentecostalism. Sometimes Pentecostals, God will speak very directly to you as well. And so that's what I grew up in. And I went to the denominational college down near Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I hated it, minute one. Uh, I was getting my stuff out of my car, packed in boxes, found my dorm building. I'm starting to pull my stuff out. I'm inside the car, and I hear a voice behind me say, Ha! And I turn around and, and for, you know, forgive me, but I'm just telling you how I was feeling. That there was this goofy-looking dude standing there. And he puts his hand out and he says, I think you're in my dorm. Okay, he says, and I, and I, can I help you? He was very nice. Can I help you? And he starts taking boxes up to. I gave him my room number and he said to me, what I feared, what do you think is coming next? That's his room too. So we're going, be, we're going to be roommates. But again, he was nice, and then we got the boxes up, and he said, let's go to dinner. Let me show you Whataburger. Anybody familiar with the South? Whataburger is a big thing. So he took me to Whataburger. And when we sat down to have the meal, I was accustomed all my life to, and still am, pray over the meal. And so, but he threw his hands down like this on the table. And he said, where I come from, we hold hands when we pray. And I said, where I come from, we don't. <laughs> I am not holding your hand. <laughs> so I'm having this tinge that it's not God's will for me to be at this college. <laughs> at least not in this dorm or not in this room, and I'm trying to figure it out. And, but I was having other issues. Uh, I'd gone to a Baptist high school. I'm now at a Pentecostal college. So I was having some doctrinal a turbulence going on inside, and so I wanted to leave, wanted to leave pretty quickly. And I let it be known, I let it be known to that guy, I'm thinking that this is not, is not the best choice for me, I think I'm going to head back to Michigan. You can't do that, can't do that, it's out of God's will. We need to go to the prayer tower and pray about it. They have a prayer tower on campus. I was taken to the prayer tower, (laughs) By that guy and some other people. And they all prayed. See, I want to say they prayed with me. Pentecostals don't pray with you. They pray over you. They lay hands on you. I'm the subject of this prayer tower session. And there are many Pentecostals with hands on me. Praying for me that I will do the right thing. Do God's will, which means what? Stand at God. So they have that prayer session, and I, you know, I thank them, and I'm still not staying at the college. And I know this, but you know, I politely put them off, and at 2 in the morning, I sneak out of the campus, <laughs> and I drive, this is all true, I drive home. I drive home the 9, 10 hours from Chattanooga back to E-Course, where I was raised and lived to tell about it. As I'm driving home, I'm afraid. God is going to kill me. I was afraid. I'm out of God's, I'm God of God's will. I mean, if that's God's will, I don't want God's will, but I'm out of God's will. And so I knew what to do. I knew what I had to do. If God's going to try to kill me on the freeway, I just need to be extra careful. So maybe God will miss. So I was. I'm holding on to, I'm checking, using turn signals. I'm just very careful to make sure I don't make any mistakes and get killed. Lo and behold, I didn't get killed. Now, whether it was God's desire to kill me, my Pentecostal friends might say, God might want to punish you in some way for this, to show you the area of your way. But I came to learn that if God wants to do something, he gets it done. So apparently he didn't. I made it home, enrolled in college up here, and I won't bore you with the rest of the story. But I tell you that because lots of young people, maybe not that dramatic, but had that kind of turmoil. Because there is God's will, and you've got to find it. And if you don't find it, and you don't find it about certainly the big things, and very often with even smaller things, then your life is going to go in a non-God-honoring direction. A few years later, God in his good providence led me to date my now wife. And we're now trying to deal with all this. Now, in the years intervening, a couple of years intervening that, I had learned a bit more. I had become more, a little more comfortable with the decision-making process. But Kim was not quite as comfortable. And I want her to marry me. So I'd like for her to get like comfortable making decisions like fairly fast. Okay, So we had discussions about God's will very early on. And one of the books that helped her immensely in that process is one of those that I have on that recommended reading page. John MacArthur had just come out with that book, Found, colon, God's Will. Now you can see in the title of that book what he's taking on is the idea that God's will is hidden and you have to find it. And he's saying, it's actually not hidden, it's found. And here's where you can go to look it up and read about it. In a book that God gave. And it was very liberating, it was very liberating for her. It's, it's a liberating book for those who have been in bondage to this idea, this oppressive idea, that I went wrong somewhere in my past, I still may go wrong somewhere in my future. That's the way this often, this often goes. Now, add to that, what if you were somebody who's OCD? Obsessive compulsive disorder. And you have a version of OCD that is labeled these days religious scrupulosity. It's, it's a thing, it's a real thing. That people who would normally, would normally be called you know, OCD... They're, they obsess about even small or very small things. That when it comes to religion, they are very scrupulous in the way they believe they have to go about their lives. They could do something wrong at any time. And they're scared to death of it. Scared to death of taking, making a misstep spiritually. I, I know people like this. It's a thing. It's real. Now, you think about someone like that being taught the view that you have got to know God's will, and if you don't find God's will, then your life can go in a non-God-honoring direction. That person already worries about every little thing, and over and over, and now this is going to make it eminently worse, because it adds this spiritual overlay to it. So back to page one, second paragraph. Decision time can be a time of great consternation and anxiety for some. It can be a time of great confidence and comfort for others. How you make decisions will affect almost every area of your life. So the framework that you use to make decisions must be grounded in reality and truth in order to live the way God intends. It's time to choose. So why do decisions bring worry? Well, uncertainty about what you're want, uncertainty about what we really need, uncertainty about what the outcome of the choice is going to be. Sometimes it's a combination of all three of these that contributes to the worry of our decisions. Even for those who do not consider themselves worriers in decision time, there's still the specter of uncertainty that clouds their decision-making process. At the heart of almost all struggles in decision-making is this key factor of uncertainty. So did you guys get that? Because we said uncertainty three times in the list. And then in that next paragraph, we mention it again. And then we just say straight out, this is a key factor, uncertainty. Here's the great news for you and for us. You do not need to be uncertain about what God says. Most most important. And as we're going to see in this, in this series, uncertainty about the, about the outcome of our decisions as well does not need to debilitate us because we will see that God even takes the stupid stuff you do and I do. And God even takes the sinful stuff that we do. And God is able to overrule our foolishness and our sinfulness, thanks be to God. Because if not, we're all in a world of hurt. But, if you, but you see what's happening here already on this very first page. Notice who the pressure is on. The pressure's on you. The pressure's on us. And we're going to see that the true and living God, according to the Bible, is a God Who takes the pressure on himself he takes the pressure off of you it's not all on you that's why Jesus can say things like come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest lay your burdens upon me but this is all about you and you making the right the right You see, friends, psychological harm comes to us when our worldview, whatever that is, is—a worldview, it's a big word, but just it's the way you view the world, okay? It's just how you view yourself, other people, your environment, your view of the world. And psychological harm comes when your worldview cannot process your life when your worldview, your view of the world, is not sufficient for you to process what's going on. And if you've got, if you've got a wrong view of the world, now that's going to, that can really mess you up. If, you, if your view of the world is it's all on you, and you've got to make all the right decisions, and you've got this bewildering array of things that you have to think about, that can really mess you up. But it goes back to having the wrong view. The wrong view of yourself, the wrong view of God, the wrong view of others, the wrong view of your circumstances. For example, if you you are somebody who views yourself as deserving, first, good, best, you view yourself that way. I'm not saying you do, but I know a bunch of you do. And there are times where I do. That's why somebody can write a song, in the words of that great theologian, Carly Simon, and say, you're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you. You're so vain. Well, so I'm saying, you're so vain. I bet you think this lesson's about you. Don't you? As she says, don't you, don't you, about six times. So if you're somebody who thinks that, and the Bible is replete with reminders that we are those kinds of people who are self-focused and self-centered and we deserve, we deserve better, so that's, your world, that's part of your worldview. But then life is not lining up in a way that puts you first and magnifies you and gives you the stuff that you deserve. How do you process that? Your worldview has come up against real life. And you know what? A lot of times you can't change life. You know what's going to need to change? Your view. It's the same thing with the trauma that goes with decision-making. It is because we have the wrong view, the wrong view of the role that we are called to play. It's all upon us. The pressure is all upon us. If your worldview puts the pressure all on you, you'll be crushed. You can't do it. I can't do it. You'll be crushed. You'll have to find ways to fudge. You'll have to find ways to elide. You'll have to find ways to lie, to make it work. And many, many people are in that kind of position. So, middle of page one. What are common approaches to decision-making? Emotion and passion, what we feel, what we desire at the moment, these may be made out of anger or hurt. They may be made out of happiness and satisfaction. They're generally what we would call heat of the moment decisions. They're made based on how I feel right now, even if those feelings have been around for a while. At the heart of this is a, is a feeling-based choice, but then another approach is Thought and careful consideration. Seek all the available information about it. Seek advice from other people. Spending time in, in deep consideration. Now, think about those. You, I, I know you're turning the page because we are at the bottom, and which is okay. But I'm going to say something about those. If you look at those two approaches, emotion and passion, thought and careful consideration we've set it up so that thought and careful consideration is to be the obvious the obvious choice but even that can go completely wrong because let's suppose you say yeah that's right i need to do i need to give it thought i need to give it careful consideration i need to seek all the available information well how do you ever really know you got all the available information all of it and the truth is you never do. Seeking advice, but you know, sometimes people don't tell you what you want to hear, your opinion shopping. Spend time in deep consideration, praying that you'll align your desires with God's. So that would be a very good thing. But here's what I want to say about that. That's a good thing to do. That's why we have it that way. Let's suppose you do it, and let's suppose you do it well, and you do it thoroughly, Then what's going to happen with your decision? If you do that, let's say you do get all the available information. Every piece of information that could possibly be had, you found it. And then you sought great advice. And you spent time in deep consideration. You prayed about it. You make your decision. Now what's going to happen with that decision? Is it going to turn out right See that? That's what we think. I did it all right. It's going to turn out right. And in a fallen world, there are always factors beyond what you can control. Always. And it may not turn out right. And if you think that this is God's will, this is the way you get God's will, then you went through the exercise And it's supposed to now turn out right. But there are factors outside of your control that mess things up. A job. You did all of that about what job you should take. You take the job. Could the economy tank the month after you take that job? Of course. Let's say you took that job in August of 2008. Anybody remember what happened in September of 2008? And that's outside of your control. Or it's somebody I marry, and I did everything that I could do with the available information. I got to know this person as best I possibly could. I sought advice from other people who know us both. Are we compatible? We took premarital counseling. We spent time in prayer, all of that. And can that person turn out to be different than you thought? The answer is yes. Yes. See, here's the, here's the thing, friends. It's too many of us believe in our heart of hearts in a, in a kind of prosperity gospel. You guys know what I mean by that, a prosperity gospel? Now, the prosperity gospel, you know, that's normally associated with Creflo Dollar. You guys know who that is? It's TV preachers who... Give us money, keep sending money, keep sending money. If you send money, God will bless you. Keep sending more money, he'll bless you more. Okay, it's those kind of people, lots of them. Kenneth Copeland. Those are the prosperity preachers. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. And if you do the right things, it'll turn out that way for you. It's false teaching from the pit of hell but it's called a gospel. It's not the gospel at all. It's really bad news, (laughs) and the gospel's good news. It's called the prosperity gospel. See, you find the prosperity gospel in the Bible, but you find it refuted. I did a series several years ago on the book of Job. You guys familiar with the book of Job? You know, there's a sense in which Job himself had a sort of prosperity gospel lurking in his heart. Because Job had done everything right. And the Bible tells us, if anybody could, humanly possible, do everything right, this guy did everything right. And then it all falls apart. And Job's worldview, remember what I said, psychological problems happen when our worldview doesn't fit our life? That's what happened to Job. All of a sudden, his worldview doesn't fit his life. I said during that series that if we were talking about Job in today's terms, we would say he's got PTSD. And and I mean that. He's been traumatized by losing everything that quickly. And none of this fits with his worldview. None of this is supposed to happen. to me, I did all this stuff for you, Lord. And then his three friends come along, remember that? And his th- three friends are named Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, <laughs> and, and Kenneth Hagin. Is that what you? Okay. Hagin's dead, isn't he? Okay, he's dead. But those guys come along and they're saying, hey, this shouldn't happen. When you do the right things, the right things happen. And the right, the right things haven't happened with you, Job, so there's something going on you you got a woman on the side. You've been betting on the races. You've been stealing money. You've been doing something, man. What are you watching on the internet, Job? And Job can't, fi- Job can't figure it out. They only have one way to process it because of their, their worldview. And what I'm telling you is the bottom of page one, you can do all of that stuff right as much as is humanly possible, and it still not turn out the way you want it to. I'm just being straight with you. Now, top of page two. That approach to doing the thought and careful consideration, though it's a, it's a great approach to take, but still, as you look for opinions, you can end up doing opinion shopping, and as I've said, it's, it doesn't guarantee a great outcome. Or a third approach, then, that people take is avoidance and delay. This is a last resort for those who are scared or feel they don't have enough information. They'll often delay the decision by procrastination, often under the guise of seeking more information or even praying about it. At times, this approach actually looks to delay long enough to force someone else to make a decision for us. Delaying a decision is not always a bad thing. If you make them in the heat of the moment, it could often be better if it were made if you made a, a slight delay and took more time to evaluate but like almost anything too much of a good thing can devolve into a bad thing each approach to decision making above those three then the emotion and the passion the thought and careful consideration the avoidance and delay they all contain fear or at least a certain amount of uncertainty the higher the stakes of a particular decision the more fear will enter into the thought process and drive the situation being driven being too driven by fear can result in paralysis of analysis. Some of you do that. You got to get more, I just got—I can't yet. I can't pull the trigger yet. I can't make the decision yet. I have to keep analyzing it. I have to keep thinking about it, and all of that is because you have this level of fear and uncertainty. In that, no decision is reached because the fear of uncertainty or the fear of the unknown becomes the driving force, and no decision is viewed as the best of a bad situation. So think about yourself. Which of those approaches best describes you? So why do decisions bring worry? There's always some uncertainty. Those are some of the common approaches, and then C, thirdly, what are common responses once the decision's been made? Okay, then I finally do pull the trigger, I make the decision, but I'm still worried about it. I'm still anxious about it. This person will continue to fret over a decision, constantly imagining what if a different decision had been made. They're marked by anxiety, loss of sleep, obsession with the decision, and second-guessing themselves. They'll often make those around them miserable because they, can't, they, they can think of no way to live with the decision that they've made. They may even develop physical symptoms such as ulcers, anxiety attacks, depression. And you know, that decision that you worry about and you second guess and you fret about and all of that, I mean, you know, it might be the house you bought, which is, that's bad because you, you're living there, it's a big expense, all of that. But here's when it's, it's the worst, is when that decision you made involves your spouse, What if I married the wrong person? What if I got God's second best or third best or fifth best on a spouse? And yet God says, you're married forever once you're married. So, but God doesn't want me to be miserable and you know, I had some. If it's a, if you're a woman, I had some boyfriends. And you know, I, probably, I you know, I knew it. I should have. That guy asked me, and I should have. Or if you're the guy, you know, this other girl was way more understanding. Why couldn't I see that? But now here I am. I'm stuck. And I'm, I'm saying that because that's real. I've been doing this long enough now. I know it's real. And I know there are lots of people who do that. They live their life second-guessing. Did I make the right decisions about lots of things, including their spouse? Man, we, we got to get something else. We, when I say we got to get something else, we got to get a different approach to our decision-making. And we, and we have one. Top of page three. So it might result in anxiety and worry, self-reassurance. This person will pick themselves up, constantly reassure themselves that whatever they did was, in fact, the right thing. They'll allow nothing in them or around them to persuade them differently. At the heart of this is a prideful response that sort of self-medicates by assuring themselves that they were equipped to make the right decision. So I, I know of a situation decades ago where a guy made a decision to move his family and you look at the circumstances of that decision to move his family and it probably was not a wise decision and it turned out beautifully it turned out perfect and so the person who made the unwise decision that turned out perfect what does that do for that person they're now reassured man I got this I know how to do this but it doesn't it doesn't always happen that way. You can, make, you can make a wrong decision and it turn out really well like that. You can make the best decision that you can possibly make from a limited human standpoint and it has all kinds of issues that result from it. Both of those we'll find in the Bible. So what are we going to do? A third reaction is, After we make decisions is this one, biblical trust. The person will act on the principles of God's plan for living as given in the Bible and then rest in God's sovereignty for the outcome. It's not blind faith, but a confident trust in God's power and love. That's just a couple of sentences, friends. You need to get that, kind of memorize that, live by that, because that's the reaction that we need to have to our decisions. Which brings us to this next point about what else is happening when we make a choice. So far, we've just talked about you, us, and what we bring to the table and how we go about making the decisions and gathering information. But thankfully, it's, as I said earlier, not all on us. There's something else going on. Thanks be to God. So what else is happening when we, we make a choice? The first thing is the sovereign will of God. So what is that? God as the creator and ruler of the universe is neither surprised nor troubled by the decisions that face us each day. From the very smallest in our day to the very biggest things in our lives, God is at work. Ephesians 1.11 tells us about the God who, quote, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And then the the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Let me stop there. I make known the end from the beginning. I just wanna make sure you don't pass over that phrase too quickly. I make known how it's gonna turn out before it starts. I make known the end at the beginning. And the reason I, God, can tell the end from the very beginning is because I'm a God who is sovereign, I control all the stuff that happens in between. Unlike us, where there are factors we can't control, no factors God can't control. So I can make known the end from the very beginning. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. Let me stop there. All right, so how sovereign is God? God. How how much in control is God? Many of us have been in church our whole lives. We know terms like sovereignty. But when it comes to how sovereign is God, how much control does God have of His world, many of us would default to, you know, the big stuff. Hitler, Pharaoh, he took care of Pharaoh, I know that. Herod. You know, big stuff. And here God says, Nah, I summon a bird. From a far off land, I summon a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. How minute is God's control of His world, His sovereignty over His world? Look at what Jesus said. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Sparrows are pretty worthless. That's what he's saying. Is that a good paraphrase of what Jesus said? Sparrows are pretty worthless. I mean, they're sold for a penny. And they're pretty worthless, especially compared to what is of infinite worth. Namely you, because you're made in my image and birds are not. But even a bird that's sold for a penny doesn't die outside the will of your father. Okay, so a bird, uh, but, but it's worse than that. Look at the next phrase. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You see the context here? A bird doesn't die outside the sovereign will of God, and not a hair falls out of your head. Now some of you are saying, hey, I'm follically challenged. And so it doesn't take much to count the hairs on, on the head. But God is saying, you know, we got eight, about 8 billion people, 7 billion people in the world right now. And God is saying for every one of those 7 billion people right now, There's not a hair coming out of anybody's head that happens outside of my sovereign will. Acts chapter 4. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's what they did. What your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Herod and Pontius Pilate didn't know that. They thought they were doing Herod and Pontius Pilate stuff, and they were. But there's a God who made Herod and who made Pilate and who is sovereign over both of them, and when they were doing their thing unwittingly, they're doing God's thing. And that's why I have said to you for years, dear friends, everybody works for God. Everybody works for God. Even people who don't know they're working for God and don't want to are contributing to what God is doing in his world. You get to the last book in your Bible, Revelation, and God is talking about the false prophet and the Antichrist and the beast and all of that. And he says, God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. they are are going to think they're doing all their thing like Herod and Pilate did but they're pawns in the hand of almighty God God's sovereign will then is whatever comes to pass it is sovereign because it's completely controlled by God lest you think Pastor Ken made that up one, I like read you a bunch of verses I could read you more But look at the top of page 4. Here's what the second London Baptist confession says. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things which shall ever come to pass. So God's sovereign will can be summarized this way. It's what God has chosen to allow but here's the real key to it. It's hidden. It's known only to God. If you want to know God's sovereign will for today, ask me tomorrow. And then we'd just read the newspaper. But, I, but we don't know it till it happens. He knows it, of course, all before it happens. So it's hidden, known only to God. But it cannot be missed. And therefore, does not need to be pursued. Every event is within God's sovereign will. So as we talk about now, finding God's will, being in God's will, making our choices in God's will. We're not talking about making them in God's sovereign will, because that's everything that comes to pass. There's the second thing that's really important. The Bible teaches the moral revealed will of God. And we will talk about that next, next week. So if you remember, bring your notes back with you. If not, we'll have have additional copies, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who sits on your throne and you do not fret. You never worry. You know, and you know because you plan. And Lord, there's never come a time where anything has ever occurred to you outside of your knowledge because you have planned all things. And it is why you can tell us the end from the very beginning. Help us to believe. Help us to believe who you are. And thereby adjust our view of your world so that it's accurate, so it's aligned with what your word teaches. And having aligned now, changed our worldview, now we can begin to to compare what is true with what's happening in our lives. And we begin to chip away at the psychological harm that that disconnect has caused. And so I pray that you'll help my friends here, all of us this week, to think about these truths, to own them, to humble ourselves before them. And now, Lord, we're ready to see what you tell us about your moral will and how we align our lives with that and make our choices within that. Go with us this week as we think about these things. Lord, if nothing else, help us to go with the joy of knowing that everything that happens is working out according to the plan of Him who brings about it all in conformity with His will. Bring us back together next Lord's Day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.